Jonah 4. We conclude our look at the book of Jonah today. Next week, we're going to look at Psalm number 42. That talks about uh, why we can tend to be depressed and how we don't need to be. Uh, Psalm number 42, so you can read that ahead of time. Two weeks from today, uh, Phil Hunt is going to be here from Zambia, Central Africa. He's the president of Central Africa Baptist College, and he is going to be speaking two weeks from today. Three weeks from today, on October 20th, we will begin a series through the book of Revelation. Today we conclude the book of Jonah. One of the challenges of preaching is that it must be by its very nature general. That is, because you're speaking to many people at once, then lack of knowledge and of time preclude you from addressing what's precisely happening in the lives of everyone there. That is, in this gathering, I don't know what's going on with very many of you, let alone all of you. So the message in preaching is given to a general audience rather than to people in particular. One of the advantages, then, of counseling is that it's addressed exactly to what's going on in someone's life at the moment. So some have accurately called preaching public ministry and counseling personal ministry due to that distinction. So preaching has that challenge inherent in it. But nevertheless, every message can be relevant to every one of us, even though the stories of the Bible are first about the people involved in those stories. It's true, of course, that I'll never build an ark and endure a worldwide flood, as was the case with Noah. I'll never be talked to directly by God and have him ask me to sacrifice my child as he did to Abraham. I'll never visit a pharaoh in Egypt and tell him to release the Israelites from slavery as God used Moses to do. All of those things and the particulars of those stories happen to them, not to you or to me. So why do we then care about them? Why is it good for us to be here to yet again rehearse the story of someone else's experience? Well, it's because although the stories are different... The people are not. And although God dealt with them in circumstances that are different from ours, He's the same God now as He was then. And so every biblical story teaches us something about God and something about ourselves because neither has changed in the centuries since they were written. If we look carefully, we will see ourselves in Noah as we face the challenge of standing for God in an evil time. We see ourselves in Abraham's dilemma because God calls us too to resist the temptation to create idols of anything, including our children, and to be willing to give all for him. We see ourselves in Moses' reluctance to obey God's mission, and we can identify with the sentiment, here am I, Lord, send someone else. And in all that we're faced with, the reality that we really need to come to grips with is what it is we think about God. Is he good enough? Is he powerful enough? Is he worthy enough for me to follow him? So today we want to see ourselves and we want to see God as we conclude the story 
of Jonah. So please look with me at verse 9 of chapter 4, where God asked Jonah, Is it right for you to be angry? Jonah is something that God tells us not to be, namely angry. We're going to see why in a bit. But let's pose that question to you and me. Are we right to be angry? Or what about the many other things God tells us not to be? Are we right to be fearful when the most often given command in the entire Bible is do not fear and do not be afraid? Are we right to be anxious? Are we right to worry? Are we right to despair as if God cannot fix it if he so chooses? Are we right to engage in self-pity, to live in frustration or in joylessness? We all know that God's answer to the question he posed to Jonah and to all of the questions that I just gave is no. So why then do we do them? Well, it's for the very same reason that Jonah did. And we're going to see those reasons this morning. Now, you have an outline for today's message in the program that you should have received on your way in. If you don't already have that out, I encourage you to take that out so that you can follow along. And let's bow briefly before the Lord and ask him to help us. Father, we thank you now that we are here with your word open before us to a place in your word that speaks of your dealings with your servant Jonah. Lord, I ask you to help me and to help us to never leave the story then and there, but to make application of it to our lives here and now. Help me to see, help us to see that we all have Jonah in us. And as a result then, may your purpose in preserving This narrative for us be achieved in our lives so that we can be changed into the image of Jesus and better bring glory to you. We pray this in his name. Amen. Now, on that outline, you see, first of all, that you are, we are less than we think. You see, our biggest problem is the way we think, and in particular, what we think of ourselves. And we all tend to be legends in our own mind. And that's why the Bible commands us to do not think of yourself more highly than you ought. So how ought we to think of ourselves? And we're going to see that this is what Jonah did. But how ought we to think of ourselves? Well, first, we should remember this, that your worth is derived Your worth is derived. Do we have that on the screen? Thank you. That is, we don't have intrinsic worth. We're not valuable simply because we're us. God has intrinsic worth. He's valuable and he is worthy in himself. But our worth, our value is derived from our relationship to God. So let's recall then what we are. We are, first of all, creatures made by the Creator. There are a number of implications of that, but one of those is we are dependent on Him for all things, including our value. We'd have none apart from Him. 
We're of immense value indeed, but that only because we are made in the image of God. We are as well recipients of God's revelation to us in Scripture. We know nothing about ourselves by ourselves, but only by God's gracious disclosure of who he is and what he has made us to be and to do. And therefore, we do not grope in darkness because he has given us this. We have his word that's a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. We are as well the undeserving recipients of the offer of salvation in Jesus Christ. And we're indeed in relationship to God, then only because of his grace given to us alone, this God who made himself known to us and moved on our hearts so that we saw our need when we heard the gospel, we embraced that gospel and the Savior who is central to that message. We're creatures. We're the recipients of God's message to us. We're the undeserving recipients of the offer of salvation. And then having come to God through Jesus Christ, the Bible says we are God's ambassadors called to carry out his work in his world so that every moment of every day, our labor has eternal significance. The Bible goes on to say that we are citizens of heaven who have been called into the kingdom of his dear son. And so we're the guaranteed recipients of God's future grace in a new world order, free from sin and sickness and death. And in all of this, remember this, that we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And that we all still sin every day in our attitudes and words and deeds. We, all of us, though made in the image of God, and though all of this has been bestowed upon us, we have committed cosmic treason against God. And even as his born-again children, we still manifest the vestiges of the old manner of life. And yet still, all of these things that I said are true of us. We reflect God's character as his image bearers, even though it's diminished by our sin. We do indeed have God's words so that we have direction in our lives. We've been called out of the world and into relationship with God because of the person and work of the Lord Jesus. We are each gifted in unique ways to actively participate in the mission that he's given to his people through his church. We will see him and we will be with him and we will praise him perfectly forever because we are in his family and he does not disinherit his children. As followers of Jesus Christ, we are blessed people and valuable people, though still sinful people. Now, the effect that all of that should have is to humble us. Humble us as it did the great apostle. You see, the more the apostle Paul matured, the more humble he became. And you see this if you lay out his letters in the New Testament in chronological order and you see what he said about himself. Early on and then later on. So early on, he says this about himself in 1 Corinthians 15. I am the least of the apostles. Humility there. But still, being the least of the apostles is pretty select company. (laughs) I'm the least of the apostles. But later he said, I am less than the least of all of God's people. And still later, famously, he said, I am the worst of sinners. 
The longer he walked with the Lord, the more he knew about himself and his own struggle with sin, the more humble he became. You see, friends, contrary to what many psychologists will tell you, your goal should not be then to have high self-esteem. <laughs> We're born with that. And frankly, we need to combat it. We think more highly of ourselves than we ought, thus the reason the Bible commands against it. We not only think highly of ourselves, but we don't know how to think of ourselves properly at all. As one has said, humility is not thinking less of yourself, but it's thinking of yourself less. I mean, the truth is, the person that I think about most is me. The person you think about most is you. You want a pro- want proof of this? Just uh, think about your reaction, my reaction, whenever we see a picture that has us in it. Now, it might be a group picture with 15 people. But immediately, your eyes go to one of those 15 people. How do I look? Oh, man, I can't believe I had that dumb look on my face. My eyes were closed. But it's, it's immediately, it's about me, it's about us. And we play a game of thrones. Exalting ourselves. Removing God from His throne in our hearts and placing ourselves on it. And when that happens, then things that go contrary to our liking become larger. And that is, as we will see, what happened with Jonah. So we need to ask ourselves, I need to ask myself, just who do you think you are? Do you deserve better than what God has given you and where He has you? So that it's right for you to be angry? God asked Jonah, is it right for you to be angry, Jonah? Jonah said, as you go on and read, yes, and I'm so angry, That I'd like to die. So do you deserve better than what God has given you and where he has you? So that's right to be angry or bitter or despondent or frustrated or anxious or fearful or joyless. The truth is, friends, we are less than we think. Because our value is derived from God. And we need to regularly remember that. And in turn, this means what I say in your outline. Your problems are smaller than you think. We're less than we think we are. We need to remember that our value, our worth is derived from our relationship with God. And so therefore, God needs to be at the center of our thinking all the time. But because it's not, and because we elevate ourselves, and because we play this game of thrones, then our problems to us are larger than they are in reality. The truth is our problems are smaller than we think. Notice in verse 9 what it was that Jonah was angry over. Verse 9, God said, Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? (laughs) He's angry about a plant. And so if you... Think about all that I've said thus far about our relationship with God and God being central to everything and 
keeping in mind who God is and therefore who we are and how that keeps us in proper relation and proper mindset with regard to ourselves. Then think about this. Who gave the plan? But Jonah's angry over a plant that he didn't create. He didn't spring up. Verse 6 says this, The Lord provided a leafy plant and he made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head to ease his discomfort. And then verse 10, the Lord chastises Jonah. You've been concerned about this plant, though you did not tend it or make it grow. The truth of the matter is this, that the Lord gives and the Lord takes away, as Job said. And in either case, as sinners... We always have more than we deserve if we're not in hell. Every day that I'm not in hell is more than I deserve. But we magnify our problems because we magnify ourselves. And convince ourselves that we deserve better. It's amazing. Some of the things that we get upset over. And lose it over so that we can't even function properly. I mean, we get upset over the traffic. We get upset over the way we look. We get upset over a bad meal at a restaurant. We get upset over a lost game. Over a lost opportunity. The list goes on and on. And it can go from smaller things to greater things. But even in those greater things, they are always lesser in importance than our relationship with God. Hear this. You make a big deal out of small things because you're carrying around a controlling thing. You make big deals about small things because you're carrying around something else. That's why you, if you have this particular besetting sin, or you have seen people who, they fly off the handle over nothing. The slightest thing can trigger anger. And we go scratching our heads as to why that happens. We'll see it's not the thing. It's what this person is carrying around with them. This person is carrying around with him or her a sense of entitlement that has been denied. And so life has not gone the way I want. My circumstances are not the way I want. I don't look the way I want. I don't have what I want. And as a result of that, I'm either angry or bitter or frustrated on the list goes of things God tells us we need not be if we see ourselves aright in relation to Him. And honestly, friends, much of what we call our problems would just be whining to the Apostle Paul. Did you know that? I mean, think about it. The stuff that we're upset over If the Apostle Paul were here and we laid out our stuff to him, things are not going the way I want them to go at work. 
I'm not getting paid enough. And Paul says, you get paid? (laughs) And you get to choose where you work? And you can go from one place to another to work? Really? Much of what upsets us and what we call our problems would just be whining to Paul and Christians at other times and even in this time in other places. Paul said, we are hard pressed on every side. But not crushed. Perplexed. But not in despair. Persecuted. But not abandoned. Struck down but not destroyed. He went on to say in that very passage, we do not lose heart. Here's why. For, because, our light and momentary troubles. Just pause and wonder. Our light and momentary troubles. Paul considered his troubles light. Temporary. Because he saw them in the light of God and God's plan and what he doesn't deserve as Paul. These light and momentary troubles, that's what they are. And if he heard my whining and he heard your whining about what we consider trouble, these are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. The Bible takes us to task about this whining attitude that we have. When it tells us that we have not suffered to the point of death, the writer of Hebrews said, Jesus endured the cross. So consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. So in your struggle against sin, and when it says in your struggle against sin, in the context, Jesus endured opposition from sinners. And then it's going on to say, so in your struggle against sin, you could fill in there, in your struggle against sinners living in a fallen world. This is not dealing particularly with your own sin, although we all struggle with that. But rather, this is dealing with our struggle in how to react to the sin of other people against us. In your struggle with sinners who oppose, living in a fallen world, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. That's what the writer of Hebrews says. So when I first said, stop whining, you might have said, come on, bastard. But the writer of Hebrews says, you ain't dead yet. Stop whining. It was Jesus who said, if you're going to follow me, deny yourself. We're less than we think, friends. And we need to remember that. When we are not forgiven or we're neglected, one has said or purposely said it not And you sting and you hurt with the insult and the oversight. But your heart is happy because you count it worthy to suffer for Christ. 
That's self-denial. When your good is evil spoken of, when your wishes are crossed, your advice is disregarded, opinions ridiculed, you refuse to let anger rise in your heart or even defend yourself, you take it all in patient, loving silence, that is dying to self. When you lovingly and patiently bear any disorder, any irregularity, any annoyance, when you can stand face to face with waste and folly and extravagance and spiritual insensitivity and endure it as Jesus endured it, that is dying to self. When you are content with any food, any offering, any clothes, any climate, any society, any solitude, any interruption by the will of God, that is dying to self. When you never care to refer to yourself in conversation or to record your own good works or itch after commendation, when you can love to be unknown, that is dying to self. When you see your brother prosper and have his needs met and honestly rejoice with him in spirit and feel no envy nor question God while your own needs are far greater and unmet, that is dying to self. When you can receive correction and reproof from one of less stature than yourself and humbly submit inwardly as well as outwardly, finding no rebellion or resentment rising in your heart, that is dying to self. Jesus said, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. For what is a man profited if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? You see, friends, the bigger we are in our own minds, the bigger our problems seem. Further, the smaller your God the bigger your problems appear. And so we are less than we think. But, secondly, God is greater than you think. J.B. Phillips wrote a book called Your God is Too Small. And in that little book, he has just a number of labels that he assigns to people's visions and versions of who God is. And he says, in all of those, your God is too small and your God is not the God of the Bible. In one, he says, people have a version of God in a hurry. That God is frantically trying to hold everything together. Because we have a, 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 an understanding of God that way, we're frantically trying to hold our lives together. Because we think God is on this frenetic pace trying to keep things in order, then we live our lives likewise. So many of us live with a God, with a belief in a God, functionally, who is too small. But I want you to see these three things in your outline about the truth regarding God being greater than we think. The first is that God's plan is fuller than we think. You see, in this whole story, in these four chapters of the book of Jonah, who was it that orchestrated all of this? I mean, when God tells Jonah, 
Jonah go to Nineveh in chapter 1? <laughs> Does God know how it's going to unfold? Does God know what's going on in Jonah's heart? As a matter of fact, it's the very reason that God pushed Jonah in the direction he did to expose what was in Jonah's heart. Jonah, go to Nineveh. God's not surprised by his reaction. God is using then all of the circumstances now around this to show Jonah something about himself. Jonah thinks too highly of himself. God orchestrated all this in Jonah's life as he does all things in our lives. He knew Jonah would rebel, and in his grace to Jonah, he wanted to expose Jonah's rebellious heart. And so four times in the four chapters of the book of Jonah, you have a Hebrew word that can be translated appointed. God appointed something to happen. In chapter 1 in verse 4, God appointed a wind. In chapter 1 and verse 17, God appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah. In chapter 4 and verse 6, God appointed this plant that we read about to cover Jonah. In chapter 4 and verse 8, God appointed a wind to scorch Jonah in order to teach him. God's plan is fuller than we think. You see, friends, it's not just the thing we're in. It's what God is accomplishing Through the thing that he has placed us in. Everything that he places us in. Consider the story of Joseph. And Joseph is orchestrating all of it, right? You remember what happened to Joseph. God is orchestrating all of the events of Joseph's life. The treachery of his brothers. Giving him up into slavery. Thinking that they would never see him again. Then indeed he may be... Killed. They don't know what became of him. And yet God in his providence arranges exactly what he wanted to happen in the life of Joseph, but also to teach a lesson to his brothers as well. And it ends in Genesis chapter 50 and verse 20. You intended it for evil, but God intended it for good. God orchestrated all of this for good. So God is greater than you think in that his plan is fuller. There's more going on than the particular situation in your life. Secondly, his plan is fuller and his love is wider. God did all of this in Jonah's life to get his attention. And God does the same thing with us. When God launches a storm in your life, God wants to get your attention. As one author has said, your first thought must not be to run like Jonah, but rather to discern what the Father has for you. Perhaps you would say God sent the storm because Jonah was sinning. That would be correct, but you cannot say God only sends storms to those who are actively disobeying him. He may love a person who is sinning enough to throw a storm at him the way he loved Jonah. But also, we know the storm he sent into Job's life was not because Job was sinning. We also know the storm he sent into Joseph's life was not because Joseph was sinning. And we certainly know the Savior was not sinning when he went through his storm. It can be very dangerous, friends, to attach all storms to a person's sin as though you'll get a storm only when you sin. That's the heart of legalism. That says, my performance determines how God will interact with me. If I'm good, God will give me favor. If I'm bad, God's going to hurl a storm at me. 
Not only is that bad theology, it makes a sinful judgment about the gospel. It says your righteousness matters to God and it lessens his judgment on Christ. Legalism is dangerous ground. The truth is we have no righteousness apart from that which Christ gave to us. It's his righteousness, not ours. If God dealt with us based on our righteousness, we'd get more than a storm, we would get hell. So it could be that God has brought a storm into your life for other purposes. Rather than trying to figure out whether you deserve this thing based on your performance, it would be better to do this, to ascertain what God wants to teach you. And so work with objective data, not subjective thoughts and speculations that center on our desires and wishes. And here are a few of those objective things. Some things you know for sure about God. They'll serve you well when things are going bad. Here's the first one to remember. He is good. In the midst of your thing, whatever it is, he's still good. Remember as well that he loves you immeasurably. And so he's not doing something to you but for you. Remember thirdly, that the trials he brings into our lives, the difficulties he brings are for his glory. And fourthly, that those are for our good. And you can bank on those things rather than getting angry at the trial or the person that you think is perpetuating it. It would be better to come to God and seek to discern why he loves you in this particular way. You see, friends, he loves you when you sin and he disciplines you. He trains you as his child. And he loves you when you're victimized. And he still disciplines in that and trains you. Either way, whether it's because of your sin or something that's come into your life that you did not bring on yourself, it's the same with God. He's training you. He's, that's what the word discipline means in the life of God's people. And so the Bible says this. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? So in the midst of your storm, in the midst of your trial, in the midst of what's going on in your life, do you believe that? That if I have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, that the Bible says that you can look to the fact that God did not spare his own son on your behalf, sent him to die for you. That should tell you then that now in this life, having come to him, he will graciously give you all things that are needful for you. And so when he allows the trial and he allows the storm, it's because he believes that's needful for you. And that's precisely what he did with Jonah. Jonah needed what God gave him. God is greater than we think. His plan is fuller. His love is wider. And lastly, his purpose is larger. And what is that purpose? That purpose is ultimately your holiness. It's been said many times that God's purpose is your holiness, not your happiness. And God will do whatever is necessary to expose my heart 
to expose your heart so that you become more set apart. That's what the word holy means. More set apart from the world and to God. More like Christ. So God's purpose is not about our happiness, but rather our holiness. And then in turn, our participation in the accomplishment of his work through us. Extending the heart of God, the character of God into his world. That's what God has us here to do. Extend the character of God, the glory of God into his world. But what he does in your life individually and my life individually is shape us, hone us, prepare us for that work. And so in verse 10... Excuse me, verse 11. Last verse of Jonah. God says to Jonah. Jonah, you've been concerned about the plant, though you're not the one who brought it into being. Should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and also many animals? God's saying, I, I care about all my creation. I care about even the animals in that city, in that pagan city. You're worried about a, a plant in the physical creation that you had nothing to do with, and I've got people made in my image, people who are clueless with regard to life, with regard to why they're here. Should I not have concern for them? And I, God, desire to use you, Jonah, in the extension of my character my glory into my world. And in order to do that, I prepare you, I hone you, I shape you. That's what he's doing in your life and everything you've got going on. So here's your take-home truth. Our view of our problems depends on our view of our God. If you fall apart in your problems, you can be sure that your God is too small. And friends, I'm here to tell you it need not be that way. God has made himself known. God has amply shown us who he is and that his plan is fuller and that his love is wider and that his purpose is larger. And we can trust that. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for granting us this time, these several weeks, to look at your dealings with your servant Jonah. Lord, I see myself as you designed in Jonah. Lord, we see ourselves in Jonah and in the other stories that you have given us in Scripture, all designed to accomplish the same thing, namely to point us to you, to point us to taking refuge not in our designs, not in our ability to get out of it and change it, but to take refuge in you. Shaping our character so that we can display that in our interactions with others as you use us in your mission to extend your glory into your world. It was your design for Jonah. It's your design for me. It's your design for every one of us. So Lord, help us to stop running. And help us to submit gladly to your will and take joy in the fact that you love us enough to shape us and hone us and to make us like the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Lord, may that be the case for your people in this church. And as a result of that, may we be a people whose light shines into a dark world. Who people see a difference when we go through hardship, when we go through difficulty. We do not handle it as those who do not know you. But we handle it in a profoundly different way. And as a result of that, we give testimony to your power and to your goodness. Use us to that end, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.